G'day team. Welcome back to the show. This is Conversations with Code 9 and I am your host, Tiffany Cook, speaking today with a guest who we will be referring to as Officer B. Officer B is a federal police officer and he is and he was one of the two federal police officers who were present at the fatal shooting of Newman Hayter back in September 2014 as they were meeting with him to have a conversation around suspected terrorism activity. Officer B, we call him Officer B, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you inviting me on. I feel like I want an alias name now. <laughs> You want to tell everyone why you're um, why you're Officer B? Uh, yeah, so I was a police officer involved in a, a terrorist attack in 2014 and as part of the security um, procedures around the uh, coroner's inquest, a lot of the police witnesses were given uh, pseudonyms and, you know, started off as Officer A and then B, C, D, E, F, and I got given Officer B. Makes it kind of a big deal, isn't it? You know, like as I was prepping for this and waiting for you to log on, I'm thinking, do I get to see this man's face? <laughs> do I, is he going to have his name on the screen or is that going to be Officer B too? Like I felt like there were all these new unwritten rules. Like I'm stepping into a new world right now. It's, again, I want to use the word exciting. I feel like sometimes I got to use that word and I'm like, this is not exciting. This We're talking about <laughs> terrorist attack. This is terrifying. Yeah, you know, it's um, uh, something I've lived with, I guess, for the last uh, eight and a half years. And But, yeah, no, I still walk around public with no mask on and, you know, so people know who I am pretty much. But it, there's a little bit of security, I guess, through, uh, through the AFP that they're still a little bit concerned about. So yeah. saying that it doesn't stop me from doing these sort of things or speaking in public or anything like that. It's more just try and keep my name as yeah um i mean we don't want to poke the bear that's all do we we don't want to poke the bear there's no 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 one wins in that scenario (laughs) no just keep them happy yes what is the what's your what's your purpose behind the sharing of the story what what do you do you get something out of it or is there an awareness that you'd like to what is the part you'd like to share about it I guess personally uh for me it is um sort of getting the, st- the story about the attack out there, but also, I guess, the after effects of that, you know, mentally and physically, and then the down, the, you know, the, you know, the, the mental, it, it, mental health issues are probably the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And sort of giving, trying to sort of, you know, get that sort of message out there that there is hope and that you can come through the other side because it is, uh, pretty difficult to to do at times, um, and it you know being able to speak about it helps me deal with all my sort of the issues that I have, and you know hopefully it will help others you know see that there is there is something positive and there is light at the end of the tunnel, which you never think there is really. I love the- that. It's quite a dance, isn't it? Figuring out what's what's good for me and what's you know what's poking the mental health bear and mm. what's allowing things to process. And that's that's actually a really interesting point that you make. And how did how did you know along that we'll talk a lot about the story? Don't worry, I get a bit sidetracked. I'm like a kid right. in a candy shop, <laughs> Officer B. How did you? How do you slash did you know when when exposure through storytelling or facing something is is positive and when it maybe is somewhat of an anchor do you have much of a sense of that or has that evolved over time yeah it has uh, like initially i couldn't i could speak about it you know to family and friends and my psychologist and, and that sort of thing and then but i couldn't get up in public and talk about it and and then sort of probably a couple of years ago, it sort of, it, oh, I felt the need to to do it. I sort of, you know, for want of a better term, you sort of had this, you know, sort of, I don't know, they call it post traumatic growth, and and sort of coming through and coming through the other side, and you know, being confident in myself that I wasn't going to hurt myself by talking about it, and that it was going to be positive for other people. I think it, it just sort of came to 
came to a point where I sort of it, it it's almost like oh, one day he can't, and then the next day I think I can do this. Yeah, and I did it, and um, you know, I felt really positive, and it was quite cathartic, and it still is. And you know, it's saying that it's not like I don't get upset at bits and pieces when I do talk about it, um, but you know, sort of, I guess it keeps it real, and and you know, people sort of can look at you and go, yeah, you can see, yeah, that is real. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of moving parts to it. You maybe just think of something. There's a lot of moving parts and I think person to person it changes and within ourselves day to day it changes and then over time it changes and evolves. And I was just thinking then I remember once having it, you know, I, I talk a lot quite deeply with my dad and I remember sharing some stuff with him once about, you know, why I was seeing a psychologist and some of the stuff that that I didn't share with many people at the time especially. And I remember you know, and it's probably happened more than once, you know, because he, he, he's a great communicator about that sort of stuff. And then I remember the next day he'll he'll ponder on it and he'll think about it and and he might, when next time we speak, he'll have a question or he'll ask something or which kind of pop his foot in that door again. And and I feel in the back of my mind, I'm like, no, mate, the vault's closed. We're not, I, I'm not open I'm not open to this conversation now. That was yesterday. We're not now. Yeah. Like, and I just feel a level of almost frustration with it. And I think I'm sure that yourself, you could probably relate to that when it comes to whether, you know, when you're ready to talk about things and when it's good for you. Yeah. And, and for quite some time it was, you know, I need to keep this to me and I need, you know, people would ask about it because, you know, some, a lot of people knew, but it was, yeah, I'm okay, look, and and you'd sort of brush it off and, and that sort of thing, and it was probably not the right thing to do. And, and over time, I think I've learned that that's not the right thing to do. Um, uh, I was holding in and storing it all, and, you know, and that, that just, and for me, that just bubbled up and bubbled up and bubbled up, and then um, bang, PTSD and yeah. everything else that comes with it. I've always been fascinated and talked a lot about the idea that as long with other first responders, police officers are within a, the part of your job, you are tr- your your system is somewhat trained to suppress emotions you put on. You put on a physical uniform and a metaphorical uniform and mm. that's not something that you can, you know, I mean once you start to switch off a level of emotional functioning, you kind of don't feel how to switch it back on again. But I'm interested in because of this particular case, you have this added layer of overarching privacy and security, which metaphorically kind of would have locked you down to a level of secrecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hence the you know the pseudonym of Officer B. But yeah, just sort of going back on what you're saying before, you know, like as a as a police officer, I would never come home and you know speak about work to my ex-wife. You know, and thinking back, it's like I was not going to tell her everything, but you know, you can unload some stuff, and they're going to listen to you, and they're not going to judge you for what's happened at work, you know, and and that sort of thing. And it, and it, it it's it's like I've learnt now, probably too late, you know, to share how you do feel, and you know, it's okay for men to do that, mm. but but at the time, you're sort of thinking, no, I've got to block my family off from these from this information because I don't want them to have to deal with what I deal with and, you know, you know protecting the public in, in a sense, I guess, and you're also wanting to protect your family from what you're seeing. And, yeah, that took me a long, long, long time to, to realise and that's sort of where, it, you know, like before – before the attack and or I guess before being diagnosed with PTSD, I never told my mum that I loved her and um, all my sons really. And then it's like this this change of of thinking and you can still be you can still be a man and tell people that you love them and tell them how you feel and you know, just you know be there and, and be vulnerable, I guess is what I've what I've learned over time. Totally relate to that. That that hit me in the heart when you said that because I totally relate to that idea of struggling to say those things that actually mean something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's something that if if you've grown up in a paradigm 
like we don't we don't even learn that 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 is existing in our world until we're you know sitting here on a podcast yeah. <laughs> halfway through our life <laughs> and reflect and reflecting on everything that you've done previously and go oh that probably wasn't so good yes <laughs> yeah yeah hindsight's an amazing thing isn't it tell Very us good. a little bit about I mean give us a little snapshot of I guess your your life leading up to working for the feds. What drew you into that line of work? Where did you start, and what landed you there? Yeah, so I was in the air force. I joined the air force just out of school, and um, joined as a photographer there. And I still was in the air force from about uh, I think nineteen ninety to ninety three. And you know they offered some redundancy packages because they were sort of downsizing and all this sort of stuff. So I took I took that and thought. You know, I'll give photography outside defence a go. And I sort of worked in that probably for about two and a half years as an assistant photographer in Melbourne. And that's, you know, it's just you're sort of, a, I guess, the photographer's lackey sort of running around doing all the things that they need done and sort of and learning along the way. So it's a bit of like an apprenticeship. Uh, and sort of coming up into 96, I... Or end of '95, it was the work wasn't flat out, and I was probably a bit unmotivated to sort of get out there and try and sell myself. So I applied for Victoria Police. Uh, they were recruiting pretty heavily, so I thought, no, this is a why not? I'd sort of thought about being a you know join the police when I was at school and stuff like that, but never did too much about it. And then applied and uh, sort of went into the academy and. Uh, April 96, I think it was the day of Port Arthur Massacre, actually, that um, we started on that Sunday and and then did our 20 weeks and graduated on Friday the 13th of September. So, <laughs> Wow. That- <laughs> so was that book ended by two things? Yeah. That, yeah. No red flags there. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And... I spent some time in Victoria Police, just in uniform, and then at uh, crime scene. I was there for about five years, and I guess that was sort of was good because I was able to use my photography skills and stuff there. But you know, by the end of the fifth year, you know, I'd seen enough enough dead bodies and enough misery to um, for me to decide to do something else. So I went into Intel. And had a great time there. It was I really, really enjoyed it. And I sort of that's around that time I joined the I'd rejoined the or joined the Air Force Reserves and um, was you know sort of doing that again, bit of extra money, but you know sort of staying in that Air Force life, which I sort of enjoyed. And in two thousand eleven, I got. I got posted over to um, Dubai as part of Operation Slipper in support, you know, the war on terrorism over in Afghanistan. And then came back and got us a comment out to the airport with the AFP. So it was actually sort of working with the AFP but sworn in as AFP and um, and sort of working under their terms and conditions, and I you know, really enjoyed it at the time. And and while we were there, the, the opportunity came up for a transfer to the AFP. So we I applied and was accepted, and then did the did the course in two thousand and thirteen, and yeah, started. I think I started the AFP on September the 1st and then did our course and finished sort of up in, it was November, yeah, 2013 and went back to the airport, Melbourne airport, doing investigations and that sort of thing. The idea of, like when you you talk about the photography and the, enough of the dead bodies, you know, and what flashed into my mind as you said that was this idea around I listened to just a snippet of of a podcast you'd previously done and I remember you speaking of of photographing deceased children 
mm-hmm. and how hard that was and getting back to the station and, and commenting that that was really tough. And do you want to repeat the comment that was that was given back to you when you made that statement? Yeah, well, I think I said that to the to one of the sergeants there and he said, well, pretty much if you can't handle it, you, this is probably not the place for you. You know, it's like, no, oh, how are you going or, you know, yeah. what, can, what can we do to help you through this? It was just, oh, no, but I want to and, – and I said to him, look, I want to stay, I want to stay. Yeah. And, and then I just I pretty much then just withdrew into myself. I wasn't going to talk to anyone. I didn't want to move. I enjoyed my job, but it was – I guess it was a bit of a cry for help, not in a sense saying that was really difficult and it would have been nice for someone to say, yeah, we all go through that. It's okay. You can yeah. You can feel – pretty bad about these sort of situations and you can feel sad and, and it's normal. But no, I didn't get any of, any of that. So At that time, was it, I mean, how, I just think of the contrast between looking after people, other people, so bystanders, if bystanders are exposed to seeing a fatality and a deceased person or a deceased child, are they offered support? At that time, were we recognising that and putting police and and officers in a completely different box? Uh, I'm not sure uh, around sort of the, the members of the general public. I think there was certainly some, there were some services around that for, sort of for homicide victims and, you know, serious assaults and rapes and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I remember only being contacted maybe once or twice while I was at crime scene about about a homicide by psychologists um, um, and whether we wanted to to speak to someone about it and, and that sort of thing. So it was um, we're still very, very early days around that sort of mental health and yeah. never heard really about PTSD and, you know, you sort of see a homicide. Like I, the first weekend I went on call, you know, I went to three homicides, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Wow, oh, really? And, and, you know, you're in there photographing, you know, you're photographing autopsies and, you know, you're, you're, you've got a shift and you're, you're dealing with a you know, a deceased person and you're photographing all their injuries and, and you, you sort of, you, you can sort of take a step back because you're, as a photographer, you're looking through the lens and you can sort of distance yourself from it. But yeah. you still then have the photos processed and you go through the photos again and you're putting them in books and, you know, with the blood and the injuries and all this sort of stuff. So you're reliving it again and then if you have to go to court, you were living it again. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, so it was, and I got the nickname Dr. Death after that because, you know, that first weekend. So that's just, you know, that is that humour, black humour that police use. And and I guess it's a way that you deal, you know, you sort of deal with that. But like saying that, I wouldn't have, and I, I can't even remember exactly what I said or, you know, to my wife at the time, but I certainly would have told her, no, I was on call. I would have sort of said, "I've got a job. It's a homicide," and that was it. I wouldn't have wouldn't have told her the specifics or that it was upsetting, or you know that the, the photo taking photos of kids, um, an autopsy on a child or something reminded me of my sons or anything like that. It was just no, I'll keep that because I don't want her to have to worry about me. So. Mm, that's ex- that's the first thing I think of is how. I imagine your mind, because I feel like my mind would almost start building a story about the life of this person that now no longer has a life and the family and the, you know, like there's no, I remember working with Ambulance Victoria in in the middle of the pandemic in, oh no, this was before that, in 2018, we were doing some boot camps for one of their events and one of the, one of the guys was on shift, but he was popping by to say hello to everyone and when he was there, he got a call. They had to come off shift. Someone came off back with him off shift um, for the accident that where the car had split into three pieces on the P and Highway. And and so one of the girls said to me, "Oh, X Y Z's coming back down. They're just coming off of that shift, so they've literally been picking up limbs 
and body pieces of human body off of the road. And, you know, I just I remember my blood running cold thinking about that that's a huge that's a somebody's daughter or son. That's a yeah. life of and I just I was just kind of floored and that was there every day. That's your every day. Mm. Yeah, and it is. And you know, and there was, you know, I think like we sort of alluded to before, I um it was that autopsy and you know, unless you know, I had young young sons at the time and you know, you sort of almost transposed them onto this person in front of you and you know it and and I know that you're not supposed to do that and but it's hard not to. And um and you just think this 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 could be my son, you know, and um I remember another occasion where a, a young baby had drowned in the bath and my wife was pregnant with my first son and you know, we had to go to this job and it's not that the, the baby was there, they'd sort of been taken away by the ambulance, but you're sort of rocking into this place going, you know, like th- th- this this could happen to me, this could happen to anyone and, and then you start to put your circumstances into this event, which like, the, like I said, you know, you shouldn't do, but it's very, very difficult not to and you just... Just the imagination runs wild, and yeah, and I guess, I guess this highlights why post traumatic stress versus post traumatic growth can differ so much for everybody because it's mm. because it's it's not what you see, it's what it means to whatever connection to your mind. It's not like we walk in and go, "Oh, let me see what I can link this to in my life." Yeah, like our mind does that on our behalf, and. Yeah. And we and a story is put together, and then we emotionally react. And if we don't process those emotions and make some sort of a sense out of it, then they get packed in that little box and wait until the box doesn't fit anymore in it. Correct. Yep. And then explodes. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and we're like, oh, this is a mess. Yes. <laughs> Take a yes. bit of cleaning up. Okay, yes. so let's let's hear a little bit about. Was it 2014? That is it. Newman Hader. Yep. Yeah. That's tell it. us about this lad. So um, he was a a person of interest uh, from ASIO and um, they'd sort of been looking at him for quite some time or a few months. Um, His passport had been cancelled and he was doing some internet searches on Tony Abbott, who was a prime minister at the time. And, you know, so there was obviously some concerns surrounding his thoughts and his actions. So I'd just recently gone and started in um, the joint counterterrorism team uh, in the headquarters of um, AFP office in Melbourne. So I started there on the the 1st of September. So this, we were asked to, to go and speak to him on the 22nd of September. And it, it sort of worked out. We we're going out with Vic Polvo, going to speak to one of one of his mates, and we were going to speak to Newman Hader. And on the on that Monday, I was a bit of toing and froing, but it was decided that we didn't have enough some members to do that, so um, we put it off until the following day. And coming to work that day, we had some more briefings, and then. Uh, we decided you know, we'll go out. We'll go out and have a chat. This time there was four of us, so which was sort of you know good numbers. And Big Pole had enough numbers for them to go and speak to to his mate. Um, yeah, so we went out to Endeavour Hills with the intention of having a chat with him, just about all the stuff that Asia had sort of briefed us on, like um, you know his internet searches and. Um, you know the the security concerns that they had, but also to see whether you know he might he might have a chat to us about other things that he knows, or um, or to find out what he knows. You know that those sort of it was just inquiries. We we had no power of arrest. He hadn't broken any laws or anything. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, so that was how. A chat with him, and and I guess to let him know that not just Asia looking at him now, but the AFP. So we uh, yeah went out there, the, the four of us, and 
And it was decided that me and my partner, who's known as Officer A, would um, go and have a chat with his with his uh, mum and dad. So we went out, went to to their place. Uh, they invited us in. You know, really, really nice people. There was the mum and dad, and his two brothers were there, and they are older older brothers and. You know, really, really nice family. It was a really nice house um, and they had concerns about him as well. And they told us that, um, you know, he, the father had gone down and spoken to someone at the local mosque and told him to keep away from, from Newman because they could sort of see what was, what was happening. He was sort of, um, I guess they didn't use the term, but he was, sort of radicalising or being radicalised. And uh, we had a really good chat. Like his dad came out from Afghanistan in late late 1990s, did, did I think, his master's in agriculture at, at, at a university in Adelaide. Then they bought the – then he bought the family out and then they um, – I think they came out as refugees, so they had a bit of time in – Sort of making their way here, and but they they eventually made it to Australia. Yes, and then sort of eventually moved moved to Melbourne. And well, he's he was an agriculturalist specialising in arid agriculture or something. His um, his wife was a is a lawyer, I think. And these two the two older boys were going to uni, one doing engineering and one doing pharmacy or something along those lines. So. You know, quite a intelligent family, and you know, and, and very caring, and and really, really concerned about Newman's behaviour. So, sort of, he was sort of a bit of a black sheep, and um, he'd had some contact with an Islamic bookshop in in Springvale called Alpha Khan, which was sort of which had been investigated previously by ASIO and the AFP, and there was quite quite a lot of radicalisation happening there and some high-profile sort of terrorist persons of interest, including Neil Prakash, who was over with ISIS and one of their higher sort of ups in in ISIS at the time. So he was involved in this, um, you know, I guess this spiral of, hating Australia and wanting to go overseas and fight and, you know, sort of for the Islamic Caliphate and all that sort of thing. So um, which is where Asia sort of, which is where he piqued Asia's interest and mm. and it sort of went on from there. And we, after we'd spoken uh, to his parents, they gave us his phone number and we went back to the police station and decided to give him a call and see if he'd, see if he'd come in to have a chat. So um, my mate did, Officer A, got him on the phone and sort of a bit of back and forth trying to get him to come in. And eventually he he agreed. Like initially sort of didn't really want to meet us there at the police station in Endeavour Hills. He wanted to meet us at Hungry Jack's. But, you know, you're not really going to have a, have, this, <laughs> have a private discussion around your suspicions of terrorism in Hungry Jacks. Over um, a small fries and coke. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm pretty sure members of the public could look at this a bit weirdly too. So, <sighs> and it, it's not, it wasn't overly secure. So, <laughs> we, um, so, yeah, we said no, that's not a good spot. And anyway, like I said, a bit of, Toing and froing, and eventually he decided he agreed to come into to the police station for a chat. And we were just going to sort of sit out in a front sort of office area, you know, just close the door and have a chat, find out what's going on, tell him, you know, we sort of know what you've sort of been up to and that sort of thing. And anyway, he said, "Yeah, I'll come in." And, and it was about quarter past seven, I reckon, that night. And he um, he said, yeah, I'll be in about half an hour. And so we said, now, okay, all right, cool. Well, Officer A and I will we'll have a chat with him because uh, we sort of had that contact with his 
um, his family. So it was decided that we sort of had that sort of initial sort of, I guess, rapport for want of a better term. And the other two guys that we were with would just sort of hang back. Um, you know, we didn't want to go full police up and, you know, you know, sort of look threatening and all powerful and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we just wanted to keep it pretty low key. And, and then at about half past seven, he gave us a call and he said, look, I'm here, I'm in the car park. Uh, I don't want to come inside. Can we have a chat in the car park? And we sort of, we sort of looked at each other and thought, well, he's here. You know, let's go and have a chat with him up there and then come back into the, sort of get him to come back into the police station. Instead of saying, no, 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 come in and him go, no, I'm going to leave. Yeah, we just thought yeah, that's the best way that we can sort of do it and sort of take a softer, softer approach. So Officer A and I, we went out to meet him and he parked, he reversed his car into the uh, car park, which, which is just outside the Little Stars Kindergarten and Child Care Centre, which sort of adjoins which is the same entrance and sort of shares a, a, a driveway and roadway with the police station. Yep. So it's probably about 30 metres away. And, uh, and we saw him just leaning against the, the, the bonnet of his car up near the childcare centre. And, yeah, it was pretty well, it was reasonably well, well lit. You know, we could see him quite easily and, you know, the surrounds and, and all that sort of stuff. So we thought, oh, look, okay, we'll go up and have a chat. And as we walked up, he sort of greeted us. We shook hands and introduced ourselves. Uh, Officer A gave him his, his um, oh, he had his business card from the day that we spoke with his mum and dad. So he sort of knew who we were and where we were from and that sort of thing. So he was aware, you know, obviously that we were police and um, all this sort of thing. And uh, while we were in plain clothes, it was still... Um, you know, still that softly, softly approach. And um, so we've shaken hands and sort of made our way to the car and Officer A's put his uh, folder on the front of the car and, and then Newman's walked around to the, the driver's side and I followed him around to the driver's side uh, just to have a look in the car because we knew he was with his friends that day so we didn't want to be up there having a chat with him and you know, a couple of these mates pop out and, and surprise us. Mm. So as I was looking in the car just through the, the driver's side windows, um, the partner was, was said, no, I'm going to search you now. And, and then Newman said, why? And, and I can't remember what was sort of said, said after that, but I've sort of looked up. And my partner was gone, so I was quite, I was confused. It was like, what's going on here? Where, where is he? And Newman had turned, and he was facing me, holding, holding a knife. And I sort of looked at him, and he had this. It was all I can remember is this demonic look on his face. He just, he just looked evil. And and at that at that moment, I um I I went completely. I lost all my hearing. So I think it's called auditory exclusion. And I just went deaf. So I, I could hear nothing. And and apparently I yelled knife. I don't remember yelling it or I certainly didn't hear myself yell it. And then he he came at me and started to 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 stab at me with the knife that he was holding. It was a, I don't know, it was probably a 10 centimeter blade, sort of a folding knife. And and then, so I'm sort of moving back, sort of fending him off with my left arm or my left hand to try and draw my gun. You know, in the, you know, in the height of all that sort of thing, you know, I lost, you know, fine motor skills. Mm-hmm. So I had this holster that was great on the range. You could get your gun out really quick on the range to beat your times and stuff. But when you're sort of fighting someone and trying to push this button in and pull your gun up and in the right order. I just I just couldn't do it. And so we're fighting back, fighting back and trying to keep him away from me. And during this time, 
I knew something wasn't right, but I just didn't know. And um, anyway, I went to ground just to create some distance from him, you know, and try and get my gun out. Anyway, as I was as I did that, I'd sort of moved back away from the car, and he'd walked around behind me or ran. I'm not exactly sure. And then he was leaning over me to stab me some more, and no doubt, I I think behead me. Oh. That was all the ISIS videos around at the time. And anyway, as he was leaning over me to 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 do this, uh, my partner got to his feet and then yeah, he fired a he fired a single shot that hit hit Hader in the top of the head and killed him instantly. Um and then that was the first noise that I heard was that gunshot. What does it even feel like to, well, A, to tell that story, but also what did it, like, did you feel, like, like how long did that feel? <laughs> that feels like a story that lasted moments, but so much happened. And I wonder, like, I can't help but wonder what time felt like in that moment. It felt, it, it felt like it took a long, long time. And, but saying that, um, we sort of worked out that from the time that my partner was stabbed until the time that he he shot Hader was about twelve seconds. Are you serious? Yeah, that's a heartbeat. Yeah, so I describe it as you know two deep breaths. You know, you take two deep breaths and in twelve seconds, or you know, so. Um, you know, you have a look at the CCTV and from the time that we left to the time that I, I got up and went back in and and, and called some ambulances uh, was 75 seconds. All right. You know, and there's moments there where you, you mentioned things you couldn't quite recall, mm. but the amount that you can recall in a – what was a 12-second moment of time is quite uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, and it's sort of been like um, like it's almost – I know when I was in hospital, you know, I was just replaying it. Every time I'd go to sleep, I'd just replay like a video in my head. And, and, and pretty much until I gave my statement on the, on the Saturday and then it sort of stopped and I could sort of get to sleep without sort of dreaming about it for, for a little while. And then – but yeah, like you know, it's what are we in now? July, twenty twenty three, and it happened in September two thousand fourteen. But it's still the memory that I have of that that sort of that little time frame is yeah, it's pretty sharp, and and it ha- hasn't changed over the years either. So it's um yeah, it sort of sticks with you. Do you know what really stood out to me hearing the story is hearing, you know, your your interactions with his family and I really appreciated hearing that because it humanises, you know, like humans, as Newman has very much indicated, humans kind of jump on a side with things and we make decisions really quickly and we have opinions really quickly and it's really easy to, to start to hear about a story like this and already have a subconscious understanding that he's bad egg and his whole family's bad. They're just all bad people. Mm. It's all bad. There's, there's something bad's gone on and everyone associated with him is bad. And as you were talking about this family, you know, it's it, it so humanised them and I went, oh, how complex. And mm. I wanted yeah. to ask you how how you felt you your interpretation of how it must have felt for them to be speaking to uh, you guys, obviously for help, but almost in terms of you, you're kind of the enemy because the help is my, my our, our son is potentially heading down a really bad path, and we'll look what's happened. So what 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 was your sense of of them? And God, they were pretty courageous stepping into that world. Yeah, um, like I don't think they ever, uh, and now I, I don't think they've ever got over the fact that he did what he did, and from all accounts, they hold no animosity 
towards us. Um, and not that I've not that I've met them since, but just from what people have said. But you know, like there were a lot of intelligence failings as a result of this job. And you know, out of that, you know, a family a family lost their son, right? And you know, and and as the coroner said about us, you know, our lives have been changed immeasurably since that night. And, you know, there, there's been some really negative things um, come out of it, but there's also, like we said before, some, 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 positive, some positive things. Look, I've got a, I've got a lot of time for the, for the family and I feel, I feel really sorry for them that, you know, that this, this happened. And, but it's not their fault. Um, it's not. It's not our fault. It's just, you know, it's his. It's his interpretation of Islam, and he's probably just a, a bit disenfranchised at the time. With you know, I don't know whether it's the Australian government and all the West, and you know, the the war on terrorism, you know, throughout the Middle East, and how you know ISIS is going to be the savior, and why not? Why not? Why don't I get on board this and you know, I'll go to heaven and you know, and and I'll I'll be rewarded. But yeah, it's just you know, I always sort of I always sort of think about you know, it was, there was a lot of consequences that came came out of that night, and and in particular that that twelve seconds. Like, you know, my partner was stabbed twice in his left arm before he fell over, and. And then, you know, I was stabbed five times, you know, twice on my shoulder, twice down the left, to the left side of my face, and then once in the centre of my chest. And then, and Hayden was then shot, you know, so, and it quite possibly could have been, you know, two people or three people that had, could have died from that, that sort of one, one incident. Um, but you know we're sort of I guess we were lucky in an unlucky situation that we that we did survive and that we were able to sort of come out the other side reasonably okay. But I know yeah his family is you know they're still suffering from. Did you ever summer. did you ever consider or, or feel like you wanted to reach out or connect with them or, or know about them? I think initially they sort of reached out to see if we if we wanted to meet them, but we were advised not to, uh, mainly for security reasons. And I think it was coming up to the I'm not sure if it was before or after the inquest, but it was all that sort of stuff around the security and and um, and our welfare and and that sort of thing. But sort of saying that. You know, these days I'd, I'd have sort of in the right circumstances and in you know sort of the right setting, I'd have no issues with with meeting meeting with them. Yeah. And yeah. what was your at the time? What was your overarching perception of your involvement? How did you feel about what had just taken place? <sighs> yeah, I I sort of got up. You know, sort of after he'd been shot and my partner said to me, are you okay? And I said, yeah, because he wasn't sure in that sort of that moment whether he'd shot me or whether he'd shot Hader because he was leaning over me and, you know, so he just drew his gun and, you know, he was about four metres away and fired the shot. I said, yeah, I went, so, yeah, he said, get some ambulance. So I went inside, you know, got the ambulances, went back out, Checked on him, went back inside. Ambulances came, went to hospital. And while I was in hospital, uh, you know, having some operations that night, you know, my wife at the time came back in the next day and said that she, Tony Abbott had called her. And I sort of looked at her, what, what's the Prime Minister calling you for? You know, like two police officers have been stabbed. Yeah, like it happens. You know, it's not, you know, you don't want it to happen, but police officers get assaulted and stabbed and shot. What, what's a, you know, what's a prime minister want? 
And she said it was a terrorist attack. And, you know, and I sort of hadn't realised the enormity of it despite, which probably doesn't sound good from education, but I was in the last subject of my Masters of Terrorism at the time. And I'm sort of just thinking it's a, um, you know, like we knew it was terrorism, but I just didn't, I just didn't get the gravity of the situation. Yeah. It's so close to home. Like it's hard to, you know, it's hard to process. Even hearing the story, it's it's really you're pulling images off a TV screen and into the into real life and going, oh, this isn't just a show. Yeah. And oh, this like, is this is real. This is this is in your life. And it's like it'll this will never happen to me. You know, yeah. it's like it happens. It always happens to someone else. It's someone overseas or another police you know, person interstate or, but it, it's, this doesn't happen, this will never happen to me. And, and you know, you know, like I say, you know, that 75 seconds or or the 12 seconds that all this took place in, you know, it's like it doesn't take that long for someone to make a decision to try and kill someone. And, you know, I mean, you know we're in that situation and, you know, it did unfortunately happen to us, but saying that we've spoken, my partner and I, and you know about the attack and um, sort of and the follow-on from it, and sort of said, you know, I don't think I don't think we'd change anything. While the attack was horrendous, and it has affected us, it's also made some changes and and I know for me it certainly made me and saying that it didn't happen overnight but and it took quite some time but it certainly made me a better person and a, a better father and a better probably a better son and a better partner too. Um, I, I guess you know just dealing with the consequences of of you know of of PTSD and and going through these really 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 dark 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 times and coming out and seeing all these people that are around you that are, that have supported you through that entire time and you go well these people have really shown me love and 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 caring and and I guess you sort of get this light bulb moment it's like if they can do it then. So can I, and you know, and I can cry, and I can tell someone I've had a crap day, and um, you know, I can cry, like I can cry in front of my sons, and I've done it a number of times, and and shown them that you can be vulnerable as a man. I, you know, I, I said to my psych one day, I said, I just cried on my fifteen-year-old son's shoulder, and I feel really bad about putting all this emotional download onto him. And she said, why do you feel bad about that? Because you're showing him that men can cry and they can be vulnerable and they, they can show their emotions. So you've taught him a valuable lesson. Don't, don't feel bad about it. And I sort of, you know, reflected on that and went, you know what, that's, that's a really good piece of information you know, to, to sort of remember and not that I go around crying on everyone's shoulders all the time and, and that sort of thing, but um, it certainly it certainly doesn't stop me from, you know, telling my mum that I love her and telling my boys, even though they're now 21 and almost 24, mm. you know, saying I love you. And, and if they say it back, they say it back. If they don't, they don't. But at least they know that, you know, how I feel. So. Isn't aren't we funny creatures? Like we we always think that we're this burden when we're not the bloody spark of joy and and mm-hmm. happiness in the room. It's like if I'm not that, I'm just burdening everyone. But really, when you when you actually think about it, when you think about the people that that drop their guard and fall to pieces on your shoulder, and think about how much I don't know. I'm sure you feel the same, or have at times how much of a kind of a privilege it is, and that moment of vulnerability and connection where you go, I, I get to, 
I need yeah. to be something for this person. But yet when it comes to us, we we forget that side of things. We're holding that back from them. Like what a privilege for your son to Yeah, it is and 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 you said what you said then is is spot on. It is and people should see it as a privilege of being the person that someone shares their vulnerability to because it takes it takes some bravery and strength to be able to do that. And sort of talking about the bravery, we, Officer A and I were awarded um, a brave bravery medal for our actions on that night by the Governor General, you know, and, you know, and the citation reads what it reads and, you know, says, you know, we, we did what we did on that night. But I think, you know, that, it means more to me in how I've been able to 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 be like you said be vulnerable and and give myself to people that I haven't that I wouldn't normally have done before and so um, yeah and and that being able to you know give that person that that sense of wow you know this this person is, or I'm talking to you because I really, really trust you and and I want you to, you know, to to see how vulnerable I am and but be there for me. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the moments that now where PTSD comes to town for you? Like how, what, what are the things that now, how has life changed where you need to adapt or, or accept perhaps what, whatever's going to play out in that realm? Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, it's sort of come out, you know, I'd sort of speak to my psychologist and say, look, I can't see a light at the end of this tunnel. I just, there's just nothing. It's just dark and I just can't see me being able to, be happy again or to be sad again or, you know, just being in this numb state. And and then it's almost like this, you know, um, an epiphany and you sort of wake up one day and there is a little pinprick at the end of the tunnel and then it'll disappear and then it'll be back for a few more days and then it'll – and it's sort of that really, really slow process. And um, sort of coming – well, sort of – you know, for a good analogy, sort of coming into that light and out of the tunnel or towards the end of the tunnel, you probably never probably never get to the end, but there are like my sleep is still probably not right. And I sort of wake up and at times and you know, sometimes my you know, the, the ability to be empathetic to people is probably not overly flash sometimes either but you know I sort of try and take that and, and know that know that I'm doing it and sort of and, and, and work on that and yeah I don't know it, it's it's difficult because there are you know obviously I, I have more really I've been quite good you know over the last couple of years and you know sort of trying to keep healthy and running and you know or exercise and eat well and you know probably probably sometimes drink a little bit too much, but, you know, that's sort of um, – but it's more so now drinking in a social sense rather than drinking to forget mm. and um, try and get to sleep and, and all that unhealthy sort of the, what drinking can bring. But, but yeah, I think certainly the the positive side that sort of come out of it i think i spoke about before is just knowing myself better being a better person probably being a better communicator just realizing what i could have lost mm. and then sort of sometimes it's not always flash i'm not always the you know the best person or partner or dad but you sort of probably better more times than not which is i guess is good and getting better so mm. Was there, I, I used to ask or I get tempted to ask and then before I even ask it, I'm like, it's kind of a dumb question because I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> I'm going to ask the okay. dumb question, Officer B. Um, well, they, don't they say there are no dumb questions? Well, that's so. right. Well, <laughs> just because my my perception of life and 
the journey and circumstances and self-awareness has, cha- has evolved a lot over time over a lot of these conversations. So once I would have said, hey, something along the lines of if you could go back to yourself at any time along that little bit of a journey uh, and tell yourself something or what do you wish, what do you know now you wish you knew then, what would you say to yourself or what? But I think that each when the time is right and the journey is right, those two things come together. So are there any moments where pennies dropped or where you went, ah, oh, and and your perception of what you had been through or what you were in the middle of, of changed and, and life become easier? World's longest question. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there was a specific time or a, a point in time where it just went, you've got it, yeah. um, or that, that, that changed. It was certainly not long after um, my wife at the time and I um, separated and I'd, you know, I didn't want the marriage to end and um, I couldn't get my head around it. And I'd booked in, I'd booked a, we'll call it a holiday, but I went over and did the Kokoda track in April 2016. And this was sort of just after we'd sort of broken up. And I was, I was, I was, you know, all I could think about was, you know, the marriage and, and I didn't want it to end and, and whatever. But over that eight days of slogging up and down mountains and mud and, and whatever else, you know, I had a lot of time to think and reflect about who I was and what I wanted and, and this sort of thing. And by the end of it, I remember us walking. Uh, we had Anzac Day at Kokoda Track on the last day and we're sort of walking down. We're walking in, sort of down into Kokoda. And, and I was just sort of walking and, and I – had this realization that while I didn't want the marriage to end, everything was going to be okay. And my sons were going to be okay. I was going to be okay. Next wife was going to be okay. And it was the best decision that could have been um, that she made. It was sort of, I guess that is probably the only moment that I can really um, pinpoint as a as a big turning point for me. But saying that, then I went, I got posted with work back to Port Moresby later that year, and and I was and I was fine and, and whatever. But then it was that sort of July two thousand eighteen or June two thousand eighteen when I got diagnosed with PTSD and came back, and so that wasn't so much about the marriage; it was more about. Um, me and, and and my head and then sort of getting through that. And then I guess just over time, little things change and little things change and you sort of start doing things a little bit better and realising that you can ask people for help and you can show them emotions. And, and there was a quote that I heard recently and it was by Marcus Aurelius and he was a Roman emperor on a couple of thousand years ago and and part of the quote was, um, you know, get active in your own rescue, mm. and which really resonated with me because over that, over that few years, I was always sort of struggling to find a term for it. Mm. And it, it came, when I heard it, it was like, uh, you know, that, that's perfect because you sort of got to help yourself before others will help you. But it depends, however that help comes and and what you need and how strong you are to help for that and, and whatever. But it's in your own way of, of getting that help because I, I think if you're – like I've always tried to go back to work. I've always seen the psych. I've always tried to get better, however little that little – those little steps were. I always tried to do something just to I, – I, but saying that it's – it's not the easiest thing to do at times. Last question. What um because I could talk your ear off for bloody days in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> what with the it's quite a long time to get that diagnosis, isn't it? So as I mean, especially given the amount of things you'd seen and been through along the way, and then that enormous, you know, and then we've got a four-year stint before the official diagnosis comes through. What was 
the process for you of getting what what did it feel like was was it a weight off your mind was it good did the label at some point ha- become an anchor did it did it feel like it kind of anchored and felt heavy or was it a lightness what was that process um i knew um so i got i was sort of officially diagnosed with it towards the end of june 2018 and sort of for the three or four months probably for the three or four months prior to that i knew that something wasn't right i'd i'd sort of I, I had a i was in while i was in png i was in another relationship and that sort of broke down and and then sort of earlier in the year and you know i was i couldn't go to sleep you know I, I, and i'd when I did, I'd wake up, you know, at 2.30 every morning. Was Whether I was tired or not, I would just wake up and be like, you can't go back to sleep. And Because I had a little bit of travel involved in my time when I was in PNG. So I'd fly back from Australia and I'd sort of, we'd be flying into land and my hands would shake and, and I'd get all knotted up in the stomach. So I was just, I was anxious. And, you know, at times I was driving around Port Moresby crying and I just couldn't, I just didn't know what was wrong. And... And I'd sort of had to go back to Australia um, or come back to Melbourne for an appointment or, and I was having an appointment with my psychologist and I sort of walked in and, and I, I sat down and she sort of looked at me and we sort of started talking and probably about five or ten minutes into the into a discussion, she just said, you've, you've got PTSD. And I sort of looked at her and I had, it was just, it was a relief to be diagnosed with something that I, that I knew, okay, now I can try and, I know, typical bloke talk, I can try and fix it. <laughs> I, can, I can try and fix this. Yeah. So it was, it was a relief saying that I'd sent my mate a message a couple of months or a, you know, a, you know, a few weeks earlier, and I just said I said all these things in the text. But one of the things I said was, "I'm really afraid of those four letters, which were PTSD wow. and and being diagnosed because I was just a mess. I, I just had I was emotionless. I, um, you know, I couldn't I couldn't be happy. I couldn't be sad. I didn't want people around. I wanted people around. I. I was drinking heaps and to go to sleep and to try and forget. And, I, you know, the attack would just pop up yeah. whenever yeah. and randomly. And also, so I was just in this, I was in a really bad headspace. And um, and when that sort of diagnosis came through, while I was afraid of it, I was relieved yeah. that now, okay, we've labelled it, let's let's do something about it and and treat it and try and get better. Um, but you know, it took some time um, to you know to get through that period of time. Um, but you know, and there was events along the way that that probably set me back quite a bit. You know, some work related, and you know, my dad died a few months later, and um, you know, so it's all you're sort of going along nicely, and then bang, you sort of get hit with something else. And you don't have the capacity to be able to deal with these big events in your life yeah. um, like you would normally. Yeah. So it sets you back and then you're sort of back on this path again and it's up and down, up and down and, you know, moving through until you're sort of, sort of almost at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Sitting here hanging out with me, can't get much better than that, can it? That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> on a sunny afternoon in northern New South Wales. <laughs> Bloody beautiful. Oh, I can't thank you enough for for sharing what you have today. I, you know, like when I hear people speak about what they've been through and, and the effects that it can have, just every different perspective like I see value in hearing the way you've been through something of you, like when you described that light at the end of the tunnel, like I think I'm always thinking in terms of the listeners that right now are in the thick of the shit and they're looking for some sort of sign that 
that they're the same as someone else and that there's going to be something. And so when, when, yeah, when I, when I can hear something that could potentially show someone that, Hey, you know, I've been where you are and there's no bloody miracle pill. There's no miracle pill and you might not wake up tomorrow and be dancing in sunshine. But if, you know, if you can see a pinprick of light, then you're you're on the right path. And I love that. Yeah. And and just, I guess it's hard, but, you know, try and just try as hard as you can and, and trust people around you to, you know, to be there for you, I think is the, is the biggest thing. And, you know, and, and, and I'm never gonna. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it or say that it's easy because it's it's not. It's a bloody terrible thing um, to try and get through. But eventually, you will. And you know, you might not be what you were before, but hopefully, you'll be just that little bit better. You know, even if it's one percent, then you know that one percent can hopefully turn into another one percent here and there. And and, um, and like you yeah. said, which stood out as well was. That, that you're the things that are better now because of that your relationships you're being being a better father like you you reeled off a number of things that have improved as a result of what you've been through and it sounds cliche to talk about silver linings and all that jazz but yeah. the fact is you know we never we can't know for sure because we can only live the one life the one way and have the one set of circumstances we can't go back and do it again and compare but it's probably fairly safe to say that maybe you wouldn't feel that deeply about those things if this other stuff hadn't happened. Correct. And I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that I wouldn't feel like I do now. Or So I think, you know, you talk about sliding door moments and that was certainly a sliding door moment, but um, you sort of look back and go, well, you know, there's probably more positives that have come out of it than negatives. Amazing. Amazing. You're a weapon, clearly. Uh-huh. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm guessing you don't have like a, a social account or anything you'd like to direct anyone to. Is there anything you would like to promote? Yeah, I've got um, – so I've got Officer B Speaks <laughs> Instagram and sort of in the process of getting a website up and running to point towards, you know, sort of those presentations and – you know, that sort of speaking side of things to be able to sort of get that out there, which will be officerbespeaks.com. Beautiful. And or and also the email is just the same, officerbespeaks at gmail.com. Well, I have just given you a follow. I've given you a follow. Okay. I'm on your Insta. You're, you. already, <laughs> you're already promoting the podcast. So this is Ace. Hey, thank you so much, everyone. Go give Officer B Speaks a follow. Let's get him out there. Let's get him speaking some more. <laughs> um, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks, Officer B. I keep going to say your real name. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Appreciate it.